Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, for giving us your word. As we often say, not, not just in, in pen and ink, but in flesh and blood. But not just telling us about yourself, but showing us yourself in your, pers- in your, in your son, Jesus Christ. And uh, we thank you that, that he came and he, he truly purchased redemption and forgiveness for us. And, and we admit that we forget his good work that he's done on our behalf. And we are often ungrateful. And so we ask in this moment that you would make us grateful, that you, Holy Spirit, would be stirring our affections, opening our eyes and our ears to love, to hear, to see Jesus, and to be transformed by your working. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The, the passage read for you, I recognize is quite lengthy, right? But we're not going to be working through that whole passage. We're working just through 19 through 25 this morning. We've been working through this first chapter for uh, quite a bit of time now, and we just keep adding to the passage that's read for you. Um, we've, t- we've taken quite a bit of time to get through this, this first chapter, and Next week will be our, our last week in, in the first chapter of James. And then our, our pace will quicken from then on through the end of the book. And the reason for uh, this extended stay in chapter one is because James takes this introductory chapter to introduce, sometimes more than once, the themes and the topics that he's going to explore in greater detail throughout the rest of his letter. So we have in miniature several subjects in chapter one that James will then take and further expound upon at a later point. And the the successive subjects in chapter one are therefore kind of unrelated to each other at times. And yet, in order to create a a sense of of movement and and continuation in the chapter, James works in these connecting words between the sections, between these peripherally related paragraphs. And they're they're like breadcrumbs that that he lays out to to draw us through from section to section through the end of the chapter. And our passage last week ended with a a mixed metaphor in which God was described in in maternal terms as one who gives birth to us by the word of truth, which then in turn, this word was described as being the seed that that makes us the the first fruits, the finest produce of, of God's harvest in the world. And as we come to Verse 21, we see that this, this word of truth is, is one of those breadcrumbs. It's the, it's the link between our passage for this morning and the previous passage, which we discussed last week. In verse 21, James writes, Rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. Right? This word, whatever it is, is God's seed, which is implanted in believers and from within issues forth in a, in a life of good works consistent with who we've been made to be in Christ, right? The picture of a, of a word implanted in us is of God pressing a seed with his thumb into the soft soil of our hearts that will in response push up a green seedling once the seed has taken root in our lives. This word therefore is productive. You might even say reproductive to continue James's metaphor. 
It possesses a creative power. It has the power even to save souls. And all that James says you have to do is to welcome it with meekness. God's the actor in this metaphor, depositing his word like seed in us. And we're called to openness and humble receptivity. But what is this word that James speaks of that has the creative power to save your souls? A New Testament scholar, Dan McCartney, simply says that this word is the gospel. The gospel, like a seed, possesses hidden life within it that, given the proper conditions, will grow and produce something new. A stalk of wheat in the case of a seed, a changed life in the case of the gospel. But what is it that's inherently transformational about the gospel? Why have countless people in history heard the gospel and been fundamentally changed? What is it about the gospel that's so powerful, having the power even to save your soul? And to answer that question, we must read on further in our passage this morning to to catch a a substitution in word choice that James makes in verse 25. In verse 22, James is is insisting that anyone who's received the implanted word, the gospel, must be a doer of the gospel, not merely a hearer. We're going to get to that distinction between doing and hearing in a minute. But right now, we're still asking ourselves, what's inherently transformational about the gospel? In verse 22, James is talking about the word. Be doers of the word, he writes, and not merely hearers. And in verse 23, he continues to talk about the word, specifically looking into the word like one would look into a mirror. In verse 25, however, he continues this metaphor of looking into a mirror, but instead of looking into the word, he has swapped out the law in place of the word. In verse 25, the theoretical people he's speaking to, uh, speaking about, are looking into the perfect law of liberty. Law and word, word and law. He's, he's using these terms interchangeably here. And it's this substitution that helps us to understand the power of the gospel. For James here is a, equating gospel with law and, and more specifically the law of liberty. Right? In, the, in the desert outside of Egypt, God, God gave his law to the, to the Hebrew people. It was a law with an immense amount of detail, from dietary restrictions to, to worship prescriptions, and it carried with it a terrifying penalty for any violations. Right? Leviticus lays out the promised punishment for disobedience in vivid detail. It's, it's told as if God is speaking, and he says this, if you will not obey me, and do not observe all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and abhor my ordinances so that you will not observe all my commandments and you break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I'll bring terror on you, consumption and fever that waste the eyes and cause life to pine away. You shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I'll set my face against you and you shall be struck down by your enemies. Your foes shall rule over you, and you shall flee, though no one pursues you. And that is just the introduction. He's just getting warmed up. And so on the one hand, the the Hebrews were this privileged people. They were given revelation about what God expects and requires of humanity. And yet, on the other hand, it was an utterly devastating revelation 
for obedience in every point of the law was and is an impossibility for humanity in our current fallen and selfish state. The law is is summed up by Jesus himself with two comprehensive commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are utterly impossible tasks to fulfill without every faltering and even the most minor offense. And so the law, despite the fact that it was God's self-disclosure, was completely damning, right? Jesus will say later on in chapter two that if you've, or James will say later on in chapter two that if you failed in just one point of the law, then you're a lawbreaker. You're guilty of the whole thing, deserving of God's righteous displeasure. The law was this wonderful and terrible thing all at the same time. It provided something to aspire to, and yet it always proved out of reach. As Paul says in Romans 3, it served to make us aware of our sin and our shortcomings. Right? Another way you might summarize the law is be perfect as God is perfect. Now, one can easily see the inevitable light that will be shown on our many imperfections in sin when we attempt to be like God in his perfection. The law, therefore, would not appear to be a mirror one would want to stare into for too long. The result would be condemnation and and guilt. Indeed, James is not advocating that one stare into the, the law with its impossible demands and damning reflection. He is, however, advocating that one stare long and hard into the law of liberty, which is what he equates with the gospel. The law of liberty, this is the law with all its content and all its demands, but it is the law fulfilled on our behalf so that we are set at liberty in relationship to it. We are free from its condemnation. The law remains this revelation of who God is and what he requires, and yet we're no longer judged by it. This cannot be because of some change in us. We, we may have improved in some ways, but we certainly haven't become perfection. It also cannot be because God has decided to, to waive his requirements, right? While you may claim that that would be the loving thing to do, it, it would be unjust. Justice requires God to remain immovable in his demands. No one would ever claim a judge was being loving if she were to simply waive the sentence of a grievous offender and let him go free. The offended party seeking justice certainly wouldn't come to that conclusion. Why do we expect God to act any differently? And he doesn't. He maintains his demands. He's fully loving and he's fully just. So we haven't changed and God hasn't changed. What changed was Jesus Christ. What changed was the good news of the gospel, which is that the son of God took on flesh and he fulfilled the law during his life. He knew we couldn't do it. A human being had to fulfill the law because human beings have been the offenders, and yet only God was capable of that fulfillment, of that perfection. Therefore, Jesus was the only qualified candidate, and he fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf. And after fulfilling it, he turns to us, miserable offenders, and he says, the satisfaction of my obedience is yours. God the Father was satisfied with the obedience of Jesus Christ and in his love was 
willing to let Jesus serve as our representative in the requirement of the law. Therefore, the law, which was once damning, is no longer so. In Christ, we're free from its judgment. And in, in Christ, we're accepted by God, not on account of our perfection, but on account of his. This is the power of the gospel, the law of liberty. You're forgiven despite your failure to live up to God's standard of perfection. As Tim Keller has said, you are, you're far worse than you ever imagined. This is the effect of measuring yourself against the law. You're far worse than you ever imagined. And yet you're more loved than you'll ever know. This is the conclusion of Jesus's obedience and fulfillment of the law on our behalf. You're far worse than you ever imagined. And yet you're more loved than you'll ever know. This is a truth that contains within it great power, like a tiny seed that will turn into a mighty oak over time. This is something to look into, a mirror to stare into. Yet James understands the danger of saying things like, we're free from the condemnation of the law to a a sinful people always looking for a way to justify our sin. Our twisted and warped logic immediately begins to ask, well, if if in Christ we are no longer condemned by the law, then why should we make any effort to obey it? If we're free from it, then why submit to it? And James anticipates our devious logic, and in response, he profoundly rearranges the order of religious logic in a way that's completely unique to Christianity. Every other religion... and and unfortunately, many within Christianity as well, teach that people perform good deeds in order to earn favor with some deity, whether that deity is is personal by nature or conceived of as some spiritual force, right? We act to earn. But Christianity says that you are favored by God up front on account of Jesus's goodness and in spite of our sin. And our performance of good deeds flows out of gratitude for the gift of love and forgiveness. Just like a plant sprouts from a seed planted in the ground. Our actions are a response to the good news, the seed put in our hearts by God, that we are saved regardless of our actions. In Christianity, we don't act to earn. We act because we have already received. It's the complete reverse of every other religion. And so James is saying that while we meekly welcome or receive the word of pardon and and favor that God implants in our hearts, that good news must issue forth in behavior that's pleasing to God and, and strives to be compliant with his law. If no such response to the gospel is present in your life, then switching metaphors with James, it's because you've forgotten the gospel or perhaps never understood it in the first place. The Christian who lacks good deeds that are motivated by joy and not guilt or fear is like a a person who's forgotten who they are or what they look like in the mirror. James is holding out the law of liberty like a mirror. And he's saying, this is who you are. Look deeply into it. You're loved. You're forgiven. You're free. And Jesus made that true by fulfilling the law on your behalf to look into this mirror and see yourself in Christ and even rejoice over your freedom, but alter nothing about your behavior is to forget your image 
in the mirror of the law of liberty. It's like not wiping the dirt off your nose once you caught a glimpse of it in the mirror. Right? And there, are, there are two ways that this, this law of liberty should fundamentally change our behavior. The first, and I've alluded to this already, is that the fact that the law of liberty, the gospel states that we are forgiven and loved and accepted in spite of ourselves, means that our obedience should never be accompanied by either a sneaking suspicion that we haven't done enough or a fearful hope that we have. We don't have to live with dread of of not doing enough because Christ has done enough for us. I don't like this next question. That doesn't keep it from being asked. If you ever hear someone ask the question, how can you be sure you're going to heaven? With a list of things they've done, right? If they respond to that question with a list of things they've done, then they don't understand the gospel, right? The only way a Christian can answer that question is by pointing to the cross. That's how I can be sure. Because look at what he has done for me, right? So the gospel means we don't have to live with the, the dread of doing enough. Yet it also means that we are obligated by gratitude and joy to do more to always strive towards perfection. When we come up short, our failure doesn't have to fill us with fear because we didn't accomplish our forgiveness in the first place, which is the grace that then pushes us back into a pursuit of perfection in Christ-likeness. So we don't have to live in fear that we've not done enough, and yet we're obligated by gratitude and joy to do more. And we didn't spend a lot of time in verses 19 to 21, but in these verses, we see what's involved in that joyful pursuit. It's a shedding of our former way of life and an adoption of Christ's way. In verse 21, James demands that we rid ourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness. And so there are some things in our lives that we are preserving, nurturing, fostering, that we need to put to death we need to get rid of. And there are some behaviors that are absent in our lives that were present in Christ, which we need to adopt. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Oh, these are desperately needed attributes for today. And they're the attributes of God, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And it appears we have a long way to go to look like Christ. We have many things to shed and many things to add. And yet God already looks at us and Christ is what he sees. It's the gospel, the law of liberty. Look deeply into it like a mirror every morning, for it has the power to save your soul. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.